0: This morning I am finishing up a sermon series that I've been doing over the past six weeks called The Practical Gospel, and the goal of this series has been to examine basically what are the implications of the gospel for the different areas of our life. What difference does it make that you believe the good news of Jesus Christ in areas of your life such as love life, parenting and family, your work life, uh, your relationship with money, your personal growth, Um, last week we looked at friendship and community, and then this week, the last one is just going to be more about your relationship with the world, basically. How does believing the gospel change the way you interact with the world? The point, basically, has been to try to put into practice what Paul said in Philippians two twelve through 13 where he said, "...work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose." In other words, now that you have come to faith in Jesus, now that his Holy Spirit is in you, God is at work within you, now work out your salvation in every area of your life. What does it mean? What difference does it make that you believe in Jesus in every area of your life? So if you missed any of the uh, former, you know, previous sermons, you're welcome to go on our website and listen to them. I'd encourage you to do that. This morning, though, we're going to be focusing again on what's the implications of the gospel for how you interact with the world. It's a very broad thing, but... um, You'll understand as I go through it. The summary statement I've been using for the gospel is this. We are sinners who have been saved and justified by grace, learning to live as new creations according to God's will, trusting in a certain and glorious eternal hope and future. And so I use this kind of to frame the conversation, the sermon, and I'll explain each element. There's three elements here. One's more of a past dimension, one's more of a present focus, and one's more of a future dimension. I'll explain that as we go through it looking at the implications of the gospel for how we interact with the world. So beginning with the first aspect here, we are sinners who have been saved and justified by grace. This means that even though a holy God created us to have a relationship with him, we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We've all rebelled against the holy God. We're all separated from God in need of a savior, in need of someone to make us right again with God, because on our own, we can't make ourselves right with God. No one is perfect. No one can measure up to God's holy standards. But God loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus to bridge that gap, to make a way for us to be restored to a right relationship with God through his life, death, and resurrection. To save us from our sin, to save us from eternal separation from God. To justify us, which is a legal term, meaning declaring us not guilty. That even though we are full of sin, he sees us as perfect in his sight because of Jesus. We're justified, declared not guilty. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, Paul sums it up well where he says, It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. It's grace. It's a gift of God that saves you. It's not by anything you have done or haven't done. So how does this reality affect the way that we interact with the world? The first thing is this, that we do not look to anyone or anything in this world To save us. If there's one savior and his name is Jesus, it means we don't look to anyone or anything else to save us. I think that's especially timely to hear this week. Some of you may have voted this past week. And as God kind of gets moved, shoved, you might say, more and more to the periphery of our culture, you find people more and more looking to politics and politicians to save us. You know, giving them, is that funny? (laughs) You find people looking to politics and politicians to do what only God can do. Because once you shove God out of the picture, somebody's got to deal with the issues of this world. Who's going to save us from inflation? Who's going to save us from viruses? Who's going to save us from the polarization of society? Who is going to save us? And more and more, when you shove God away, you wind up looking to politics and politicians and elevating them to that kind of status but if we are sinners who've been saved and justified by grace we know that no man no woman can save us no one is going to rescue us we're not going to look to politicians and we're not going to look to anything else we're not going to look to a love interest to save us We're not going to look to kids or parents. We're not going to look to any corporations. We will not look to Elon Musk or Bill Gates or anyone else in this world to rescue us. That's not where our hope is found. They're not going to save us from the hopelessness of this world or from loneliness, from division, from all of that. Again, I'm not saying Jesus is going to save us from inflation. What I'm saying is Jesus is going to save us from the fear that comes on our hearts when our hope is placed in our money, right? That's what he saves us from. He saves us from that fear. We're no longer hoping in money. We're no longer putting our confidence and our security there. We're putting it in him. He's not going to save us necessarily by giving us a spouse if we're lonely, you know, or giving us that friend, but he's going to save us by being the one who's closer than any spouse or any friend could be. He's going to be the one that rescues us from that loneliness, He's going to be the one who rescues us from the hopelessness that leads to drug abuse or the rage that leads to murder, the contempt that leads to assault. All of those things that lead to such devastation in this world, Jesus is the Savior. The answer is found in him. Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. So please, first and foremost, just look in the mirror yourself. Who are you looking to? And what are you looking to to save you, to rescue you? Have you put a little too much hope maybe in politicians, in political parties, in love interests, in other people, to save you, to rescue you from whatever it is that you or this world is dealing with? This morning we declare to you, Jesus is Lord and Savior. Look to him. The second thing that you need to know, the implication of the fact that we are sinners who have been saved and justified by grace is this, that there is no place for pride or arrogance in our lives. So as a believer in Jesus, now you've been saved, now you're entering into the world, you're going back to interact with people who may not know Jesus in this world. What difference does it make that you're saved and justified by grace? One difference it makes is this, that there is absolutely no place for pride or arrogance in the way that you interact with others. Think about how Paul puts it in Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, the difference between what you were like before Jesus and what you're like now. It says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Notice what the contrast is there, right? What's the contrast between what you were before Jesus and what you are now? Contrast is, you were dead and now you're alive. He doesn't say you once were a bad, immoral person and now you're a good, moral person, or that you once were stupid and now you're smart. That's not the difference between the one who doesn't know Jesus and the one who does. He says you were dead, you were spiritually dead, and God made you alive in Christ. How many dead people do you know who can make themselves alive? None, right? If you're dead, the only one who can make you alive is God and bring you back to life. And he says, that is your status. You were dead in Christ. Nothing you could do to make yourselves alive. But he brought you to life. He gave you spiritual life through Jesus Christ. Puts his Holy Spirit in you. So, if that's true, then going back to number two. How can there be any place for pride or arrogance in your lives as you look at someone who doesn't know God, who doesn't follow Jesus, who doesn't believe Where could there be any place for pride or arrogance? If you have been given a gift, how can you boast as if you were the one who earned that gift? It's a gift given to you freely even though you didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. So there's no place for looking down on someone else or thinking that you're smarter than someone else or better than someone else in any way. If it's just a sheer gift of God's grace, that you've been saved and justified by the gift of God. And I know this is not always true of Christians, if you look around the world. Christians do not always have the reputation of being that kind of humble. Sometimes they are seen as those who think themselves better than others, look down on others, judge others, condemn others. But if you understand the gospel, this is the implication of the gospel. If you understand that you're saved and justified by grace, that you were dead and God brought you to life, you didn't save yourself, then there's absolutely no place for pride or arrogance. As someone put it, we are one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. That's what it is. We're one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. So, we're sinners who have been saved and justified by grace. The third implication is this, that we're motivated by love, not by fear or guilt. Again, that, that word justified means that you've been declared by the God of the universe not guilty. The verdict is in. Jesus has taken all your sin and punishment on his shoulders. He died for you in your place. And now when the holy God, the judge of all the earth, looks at you, he sees you in Christ. Not guilty. Perfect, Loved as his son or daughter. Amen. Can you believe that? That all your sin has been put on him. And he's given you his righteousness, his perfection. So there's no need to go out in fear and guilt. Because you've been forgiven. You're loved. You're adopted. You belong to him. And I know, again, you think of how some people see Christians out in the world and they think... Well, Christians are motivated by, you know, fear, that they, they're afraid of punishment, you know. They're afraid of hell. They want to earn heaven. But that's just not true if you believe the gospel. We're not motivated by fear or guilt. The verdict is in we're loved. We're forgiven. Not by anything we've done, but by Jesus' death for us. And so we're not motivated by fear or guilt. That's important when you go out in this world because, again, there's so many needs in this world, so many broken people. And if you're operating from a place of guilt or fear, you can be quickly overwhelmed. You know, you think of how if you, if you have a heart for cats, right, and you, you hate to see a cat without a home and you keep taking in cats. And before you know it, you've got 20 cats in your home, right, and it's no longer safe for anyone. Or if, it, if that's how you feel about people as well, and you, every time you see a need, you feel like you have to meet it until you are just so overextended that you're burning out yourself. That if you're operating from a place of fear or guilt. Then you're not in a safe place. We're not motivated by fear or guilt. We're motivated by love. By the Savior who gave his life for us. First John 3, 17 to 20 strikes this balance very well. It says, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him. How can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue. But with actions and in truth. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in His presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and He knows everything. On the one hand, it's telling you, make sure that you have a heart for those who are in need, especially your brothers and sisters in Christ, that you don't just love with words but with actions and the truth. But He's also saying, We set our hearts at rest in him whenever our hearts condemn us. God's greater than our hearts. When we start condemning ourselves and judging ourselves and pouring guilt on ourselves, he says, no, God is greater than our hearts. We're saved not by what we have done or haven't done. We're saved by his grace. Again, we're sinners who've been saved and justified by grace. That means we're not looking to anyone in this world to be our savior. That we go out into this world not from a place of guilt or fear, or pride, or arrogance. But we can go out humbly, in compassion, to love others. So the second element of this gospel summary statement is the present element, which is this, that we're learning to live as new creations according to God's will. So you repent, you you turn from your sins, you come to faith in Jesus. He forgives you your sins, you're saved and justified. He also adopts you as his beloved child. He puts his Holy Spirit in you. You are a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. Now, what does it look like to live as that new creation, someone who's living according to God's will? And let me share two things that I think are relevant for this. First of all, you've been saved in order to do good works. Again, you didn't just come to faith in Jesus, then he beams you up to heaven. He left you down here for a reason, right? And it's not to earn your way to heaven, because the verdict is in you're saved, you're loved. He's left you here to love your neighbor. He's left you here to do the good works that he's prepared in advance for you to do. As it says, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. And then verse 10. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Notice how verse 10 follows verses 8 and 9. You've been saved by grace, not by your works, not by anything you've done. You can't earn your way to heaven. But now that you are right with God, go do the good works that he's given you to do. Not in order to earn God's favor, not in order to earn heaven, but because you've been saved, go and do the good works he's given you to do. That's you individually there, right? He's given you a specific place in your life, a specific place in this world. You have been placed within a family. You've been placed within a work context maybe or a neighborhood. What does it look like for you to be the hands and feet of Christ where he has placed you? Again, that's our interaction with the world. We have been saved in order to do good works. God has placed you in a specific place to do good works. That good deeds comes from the Hebrew word mitzvot which refers to actions that are taken to heal and repair this world. Actions that are taken to heal and repair this world. He's given you good works to do to help bring healing and repair to this world. Think of Micah 6.8. He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. St. Francis of Assisi probably put it better than anyone. Maybe you've heard this prayer before. Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. Can you see in there this this echoes of healing and repairing the world? Wherever there's brokenness, be an agent of healing. He continues to say, O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. It's a great prayer. You have been saved to do good deeds. You haven't just been saved in order to just be beamed up to heaven. He's left you here because you are a new creation in Christ to to do good works, to love your family, to love your neighbor, to share the good news of Jesus, to go and act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly. The second implication is this, that God has called us to be a part of a spirit-filled community that would love as he loved. I chose some of those words carefully there, right? Spirit-filled community. A lot of this is focused more, maybe more on individually. Like what has God called you to individually? But individually he has called you to be a part of a community. And that's, for many of you, this community that you're sitting among today. That you're not meant to be the Lone Ranger. You're meant to be a part of a community where you love. Where you love as he's loved you. Where you meet needs as he's met your needs. You care for others as he's cared for you. And together you are a witness to the world. God's called us to be part of a spirit-filled community that would love as he loved. Think back to Pentecost. Jesus has risen, you know, to heaven. He's ascended to heaven. And he tells his disciples what? Does he tell them just, you know, go out and preach the gospel? Well, he says, first, you need to wait. Wait until you're clothed with power from on high. Wait until I give you the Holy Spirit. Because if you just go out and just try to do everything in your own strength... It's going to amount to nothing. And so he tells the disciples to wait. And then on Pentecost, he pours out the Holy Spirit, God's presence inside of them, empowering them to go and to preach the gospel with power, to serve in love with the power of God to transform lives. You know, we looked earlier at those pictures that Rich had put up of, of the galaxy, and you think of the power of God and the majesty of God that are depicted there. And as we're doing that, I'm thinking about this, this whole like spirit-filled thing, the power of God inside of you, the same power that flung stars into space, that created everything with a word, lives inside of us, lives in our midst. What are we doing if we're not praying? What are we doing if we're trying to do things in our own power, in our own cleverness, right? What are we thinking if we think it's just about trying to figure out the best strategies to reach people or to grow? If we're not instead recognizing the God of the universe, the God of all that power is within earshot, loves us, lives among us, why would we not devote ourselves to pray? Why would we not devote ourselves to seeking him, asking him to fill us with that power, to do among us what we cannot do on our own, to be a spirit-filled community where it's evident it's not just a bunch of people who love each other and are trying to do nice things, but it's a place where God is present. Matthew five fourteen to 16, Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. How are we any different? Just just think about it and reflect on this church, this community. Are we any different than the world? Are we any different than communities out there in the world? In the way that we love, in the way that we care for each other, in the way that we meet needs, in the way we forgive, in the way that whatever it may be, are we any different? Because according to this, you're meant to be that city on a hill, the light of the world showcasing the gospel, showcasing God and his love. God has called you to be part of a spirit-filled community that would love as he has loved. This brought to mind a story by uh, Tony Campolo. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He was an uh, evangelist, social, sociologist from Eastern University in Philadelphia. He talked about uh, one time being at a conference in Hawaii. And because of the time change, he was still awake at 3 a.m., and so he decided to go to a, a diner nearby to eat. And he said as he was sitting there eating, and you remember he's a, he's a preacher, evangelist, sociologist, he's sitting there eating, he said 10 prostitutes walked in and sat around him. And he, he heard the conversation. Two of them were talking, about, talking with each other, and one of them mentioned that it was her birthday tomorrow, and she had never had a birthday party in her life. And after they left tony campolo he turned to harry the owner of the diner and he said you know what we should throw a party for her tomorrow agnes was her name we should invite all her friends and so the following evening tony and and harry had set up this party and so when about 20 prostitutes came in the next night they yelled surprise and agnes when she came in they yelled surprise for her when she came in and they sang happy birthday to her and she was in tears at the surprise and when it came time to cut the cake, she said, can I take some of it home for my mother? And so she left. And, and while the rest of them were there, Tony, you know, again, sitting here with 20 prostitutes, he said, let's take a moment to pray for, for Agnes, that God would heal her of any pain that had been caused her in her life, that he would love her, that he would make this next year the best year of her life. And when he had finished that prayer, Tony says that Harry, the diner owner, leaned over and said, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of a church do you belong to? And Tony said, I belong to the kind of church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. (laughs) He says, to which Harry replied, no, you don't. If there was a church like that, I would belong to it. It's just an incredible story. But this is what God has called us to, to be part of a spirit-filled community that loves the way he loves. Jesus made this point very clear in Matthew 25, 31 to 46. He said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory... I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. And then he will say to those on his left, depart from me you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. And they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Jesus identifies here with the least of these. And he says, whatever you did to them, you did to me. Whatever you did not do for them, you did not do for me. You want to love me, he says? Sure, come and worship and give your offerings and all of that. But be the kind of people who love as I have loved, who love the least of these. Be the kind of people who are generous with your brothers and sisters and love those in this world. Galatians 6.10 tells us, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. God has called us to be a part of a spirit-filled community that loves as he has loved This kind of love only happens with the infilling of the Holy Spirit. On our own, we're just going to screw it up. We're going to look like everyone else. We need desperately to seek him in prayer, to become like him. The last element of this gospel summary statement is this. It's the forward-looking part. We trust in a certain and glorious eternal hope and future. How does that impact the way that we approach this world? How does it impact the way we interact with those around us? If we believe this, that this life is not all there is, but that one day when we are dead here, we will be with him forever, where there will be no more suffering, no more pain. Well, first is this. God will one day put an end to evil and suffering. Thank you, Jesus. Some, some of you are clapping a little, high, a little more than others at like that one, right? <laughs> some of you, this is such good news, isn't it? It should be good news for all of us, but it, it certainly resonates more with some of us than others. That one day God will put a final end to evil and suffering. No more hurricanes, no more drought, no more famine, no more tornadoes, no more COVID 19, no more suffering, no more death, none of that. This is the promise in Revelation 21, 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the New Jerusalem. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is good news. This is good news for us. It is good news for the world that we live in. Because again, you, you, you shove God to the periphery and where is your hope going to be found? Who's going to deal with the, the issues of this world? Seriously, if you open your eyes and really look around this world at the devastation and the destruction Who is going to fix this? But God promises that one day there will be a final end to all the suffering and all the evil. The world will be made, be made new. And the dwelling of God will be with man. In Romans 8, 19-23, Paul says, In the meantime, we're longing for that day. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time, and not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Anybody wake up groaning this morning? Yes. He says, that's the way the world is. That is the way that we are. This groaning. The world is groaning. Waiting for that day when the sons of God, the children of God are revealed. When evil and suffering are no more. And the world is made new. It's right to groan. It's right to say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Please return and put an end to all this suffering. But that's the good news. that The go- good news of the gospel and how we interact with this world is that we know That this world is not all there is. That one day God will put a final end to evil and suffering. That as we go out and do justice, as we go out and love our neighbor, we don't need to be in despair that nothing's ever going to change. Right? I mean, if you think this is all there is, and at the end we just all die and go back in the ground, eventually when despair is going to set in. What difference am I making in this world? But Jesus proclaims that even giving a cup of cold water to a little one in our name In his name, he says, in his name, you will not lose your reward. Everything you do matters eternally. Last implication I want to share with you is this. If it's true that we are trusting in a certain and glorious eternal hope and future, the most important thing that we can do, the greatest work of all the works you've been given to do, is to reconcile people to God, to bring people to Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, 17-21, Paul writes this, Therefore, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Take a minute and just read that one through on your own while I take a sip of water here. It's so much in that passage. God brought you to himself when he saved you. He did not just take you and then beam you up to heaven. He left you here to do the good works that he's prepared for you to do. In community, as part of this spirit-filled community, he has given you good works to do. He has put you in a context with a family, with friends, with a neighborhood, with a workplace. He's given you good works to do, to love your neighbor. The greatest of all those works is this. He has given you the ministry, it says, of reconciliation, to go to plead with others to be reconciled to God, to let them know about Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, to pray for their salvation, to ask God to reveal himself to them, to let them know that there is eternal life, that there is hope, there is a Savior, and it is not any politician, any person in this world, but it is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are our Lord and Savior. Our hope is in you. And we recognize that just like those first disciples, we can do nothing unless your Holy Spirit is working in us and through us. And so, Lord, we come and we ask and we plead, Lord, please fill us with your Holy Spirit afresh. Fill this place and this community afresh that we might... Be a community unlike any other community in the way that we love. That we would interact with people from a place of humility and compassion and love. As we go out from this place, Lord, we pray that you would give us your eyes and give us your heart to see as you see, to love as you love. You have placed us in a specific context, Lord. You have given us good works to do, people to love, and people to share the gospel with. And so please, Lord, give us courage and open doors. Give us opportunity to showcase the gospel and the good works that you've given us to do in a way that would point people to you. We thank you, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.